Today we're talking about gratitude. So if you've been here at NRCC for any length of time, hopefully you've recognized a pattern by now. And the pattern is this, that certain themes come up at certain times of the year and we recycle through them again and again. And we try and come back to things that are really important at specific times of the year. And we come back to those themes over and over because they're very important. And I try to come at it from a different angle each time, looking at a different facet of one of these central truths. But that's what deep truths lend themselves to. Deep truths allow you to see the multifaceted way of uh, understanding and experiencing it. So we're going to do that right now. And one of those themes that we come back to with annual regularity is this issue of gratitude. And we do so because thankfulness doesn't get the merit that it deserves. Thankfulness is a powerful, powerful spiritual construct. And we reduce it down to something that happens around the table on Turkey Thursday. So many nations have, like our own, institutionalized thankfulness into the rhythm of their national life because there was at the core of their understanding uh, a depth of the magnitude of this attribute. Our forebears in our own national life, they recognized how powerful gratitude is. A quote that I have used in past years when I'm talking about this central theme says this, it is not happiness that makes us grateful. It is gratitude that makes us happy. There is something about the intentionality behind gratitude that creates a space within us of well-being, a space within us of peace and calm. We are better people, and ours is a better nation when we live lives of well-being and peace and calm rooted in the intentional stirring up of gratitude within our hearts. So... The ancient spiritual tradition has insisted over and over again, stir up gratitude. Be purposeful in your expression of thankfulness. Don't wait for circumstances to align in a perfect way. Don't wait to be overrun by a rush of spontaneous thankfulness. That happens, but it is not the norm, honestly. It's actually kind of rare. Instead, stir up gratitude purposefully in your life. That is the wisdom of the ancients. And because it is one of the cornerstone truths of our tradition, we come back to it in some form year after year, and this year is no exception. This is one of the many lessons that I said we'd be doing between our last lesson, which was rethinking the Holy Spirit, and our next lesson, which will be um, rethinking prayer. And so I want to begin, we're going to spend two weeks on this, and I want to begin, which should not be a surprise to you, with some context, with some background, with some information to help us think about gratitude. Next week, I'll get to the practicalities of how it has been expressed in our tradition and how some people have come to live this out, but for now, I want to just talk about some background. As the Cold War was just starting to pick up traction after World War II, Norman Rockwell, the iconic painting painter in our national life who uh, did the cover of the Saturday Evening Post for years and years and years, was getting some criticism. And the criticism was that he was old-fashioned or that he was sentimentalist. And so he took that to heart and he began to do some deep reading so that his reading could inform his painting. And he created this cover 
for the Saturday Evening Post just as the Korean War was winding down and the Cold War was just ramping up. And it was a a time in our nation's history when it was starting to dawn on people that World War II had not ended war, but that conflict might be a perpetual state. And as this painting, this, this cover was done in 53 and 54, it didn't actually make it onto the cover of the magazine until 1961. And as we were entering into the 60s, there was a national sense of despair, a national sense of hopelessness, nuclear warheads, we were pointing at one another, conflicts over the central European states, conflict in Asia and in the Middle East, when will it ever stop? It was not unlike the discouragement that many feel today as it appears that our own conflicts might drag on and on and on. Because it does begin to appear, if you watch the news, that our young men and our young women will continue to die and to sustain injuries that last a lifetime. It does appear that the same will be going on for the people in Iraq and in Afghanistan. And conflict with Russia that was once thought to be winding down may be resurging. And racial wounds that once were thought to be on the mend are again being revealed to be resurfacing. And in the middle of a time like we are experiencing today, Norman Rockwell began to do some survey reading, reading across religious lines. And he noticed something, something that he put into this painting. Though each of the major religious traditions uses different language, different wording to express it, every one of them holds the golden rule in common. It is a universal human truth that is tapped into by all the major religious traditions and even by those who cannot embrace religion at all. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. There, in that ancient human wisdom, there, in that ancient spiritual wisdom, is the answer to the always escalating conflict that accompanies human history. There is, there is the answer to the nuclear conflicts during the Rockwell era and the bioweaponry and terrorist conflicts of today. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And while few of us can control international affairs, we can all do this in our homes. And we can all do this in our places of work. We can all do this in our children's schools, and we can teach our children to do the same. We can all have some sway in city government. We can register our dissent about the way the airwaves are being used. We can all register our dissent about the way the internet is being used. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's as simple a framework as could ever have been delivered. The ancient wisdom echoes through the centuries and across cultures because it is truth. Because it is the answer to what ails us. Because it is a clear articulation and distillation of all religious law. 
because it is a clear articulation and distillation of all religious prophets. And because it is a clear articulation of the organizing principle behind Jesus' central teaching tenet, the kingdom of God. Do unto others what you would have them do unto you. And do it when it's easy, and do it when it's not easy. Do it when it's in your political best interests to do it, and do it when it's not in your political best interests to do it. Do it when it's in your economic. It will give you economic advantage, and do it when it gives you economic disadvantage. Do it when your in-group approves of you doing so, and do it when your in-group scorns you for doing so. The holidays are approaching, and one of the things that a lot of people do during the holidays is they watch movies. And often we'll go out and rent older movies, perhaps comforting and familiar, maybe inspiring movies. And if that is part of your tradition, you may want to revisit a movie titled Radio. It's the story of a football coach in South Carolina, a true story, uh, who took a developmentally challenged kid under his wing and he invites him to team practices and he drives him home afterwards and he lets him be equipment manager of the team. He gets him into some classes. Basically what he does is he invites a young man from isolation into community. And when he does that, the community disapproves in the strongest of terms. And the young man's mother is understandably suspicious. In one scene, she questions the coach about why he's doing what he's doing. She says, you know, coach, for a long time, as I've seen you drive up that old truck of yours, I've just been wondering what it is that you are doing. So what are you doing and why are you doing it? And the coach paused for a moment. He responded and he said, well, I just figured it was the right thing to do. That was the point. In the face of a tremendous amount of resistance from the players, in the face of the ridicule of the booster club, in the face of all this resistance from the school, from the players having to deal with the racial undertones of his decision and having to face down the stigma that's so often associated with disability, in the face of all this social resistance, in the face of all this cultural resistance, well, I just figured it was the right thing to do. Now, if I was disabled, and if I was wandering the streets alone during my days, and if I was afraid of the community and the community was afraid of me, if my world had become a shrunken version of what it could be, that's what I would want someone to do for me. I would want someone to do unto me what they would want me to do for them. I would want someone to do unto me what they would want done for them. And that's what makes it the right thing to do. Well, I just figured it was the right thing to do. And that instinct of the right thing to do, it's in you. That instinct that it's the right thing to do, it's in me. The instinct to revere and to honor the golden rule, it indwells our deepest beings for it is the simplest articulation of the divine life that is in us. The right thing to do is inside you and it's inside me because the Spirit of God is inside you and is inside me. The very breath of God that animates our being is expressed in doing unto others what we would have them do unto us. 
the intentional going out of our way, finding a need that has been missed, the right thing to do is in us. When I'm speaking to people about the spiritual life, I've noticed over time how often I refer to the metaphor of a tree. Because a tree naturally produces leaves and a tree naturally produces a fruit. It doesn't have to strain and struggle to produce these things. It's just a part of the natural life. And I will say on a regular basis, that is kind of what the spiritual life is like. It's a natural expression of what's already been vested in our very being. It's the nature of treeness and it's the nature of spiritness to express in these ways. Well, living out the golden rule in our daily lives is as natural to you and to me as is producing leaves for a tree. Living out the golden rule in our daily lives is as natural to you and me as producing fruit is for a tree because the Holy Spirit of God is like a seed that is within us and the fruit that that seed bears is looking very much like the golden rule. We find ourselves doing unto others what we would have them do to us. This is the life of the Spirit. One of the reasons we put that saying up there on the wall, when this new reality takes hold in you, you will love God, you will love your neighbor, you will even love your enemies. That is the epicenter, cornerstone kind of truth about what it means to walk this journey that has been set before us in the spiritual life. It is in you. It is in me. But don't be fooled, because there is also ego as self in you and in me. We also have deep false self instincts inside of us. And that means that no matter how clearly the golden rule articulates divine life, And no matter how deeply our hearts resonate with that truth and the beauty of the ancient wisdom, often, 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 doing unto others what we would have them do unto us does not just come naturally. We're too busy. Or we're too afraid. Or our world's got shrunken down when we weren't looking. And now all we care about is the primal need that is right in front of us. Our souls get so diminished. So often we live the unexamined life and so often we fail to work the circle and so often we get disconnected from our own spirituality and when we do, our worlds get shrunken down to what I need for me and for mine. We shrink our worlds down such that the natural state of our souls stops being the normal state of our souls and in a sense, the leaves of our soul curl up and atrophy. Our lives keep going on, our days keep ticking by, but we stop bearing the fruit of the divine life that is within us. And it is to this part of the human condition that the ancient spiritual wisdom speaks. Break that diminishing cycle, the spiritual tradition says. Break the diminishing cycle, the wisdom speaks to us. Bring light to the darkness that so regularly infects our souls. Because so often the darkness keeps us from being able to see the divine light that is within us. We can't see our way into doing unto others what we would have them do unto us. Break the cycle, the ancients tell us. And one of the ways they taught us to do that is to intentionally 
purposefully stir up gratitude. To make ourselves speak out some point of thankfulness every day. To insist to ourselves that we tell something of our gratitude to somebody on a regular basis. Start, as we enjoin one another to do here at NRCC all the time, every year about this time, start a gratitude journal. A place where you root around in your life so that you find the things for which you are grateful. A place where you plan out how you're going to act on that. What's the email that I'm going to send? What's the conversation that I'm going to have? What's the phone call that I'm going to make where I will tell someone about my thankfulness? Each year about this time we say, yes, by all means, make use of the holiday that we have thankfulness associated with. Make sure you go around the table and say something you're thankful about. Sure, do that. But integrate gratitude into the other 11 months of the year, into the rhythm of our lives, because it is so important. It changes us. Now again, next week I'll talk about some of the practical ways that people do this. This week I want to talk about some context behind it so that we understand the why as well as the how. So last week Jennifer spoke to us about the contemplative path. And she echoed something that we revisit here at NRCC with some regularity. She expanded the idea of the contemplative beyond the act of meditation. Now, the act of meditation is important for many, many reasons that we have outlined together. But she framed the contemplative and she framed meditation within this larger context of the inner observing. In the past, we've said it this way. So often in our daily lives, we get totally enmeshed with our thoughts and with our feelings and with our instincts and our reactions, so much so that we never stand outside of them and observe them. Those thoughts, those reactions, though they, for all practical purposes, are us. We become those thoughts. We become those instincts. We become those feelings and reactions. The way that I've said it so many times is, cheeseburger thought, cheeseburger bought. There is no gap between the two. We just have an impulse and we are the impulse. We act from the impulse. That's how we live. But the contemplative, of which the practice of meditation is a part, the contemplative life is about developing the ability to stand outside of our impulses and observe them. Oh, look at me being critical of that person. Oh, look at me thinking all kinds of harsh, critical thoughts about that other person. Oh, look at me being frightened about money. Oh, look at me feeling unloved by my lover. Now, I am not those critical thoughts that I have about those persons. I am over here watching myself have those critical thoughts about another person. I am not defined by unloved by my lover. I am over here watching myself have that experience of feeling unloved by my lover. And as soon as we do that observing, standing outside process, now there are two me's. There is the me that is kind of wrapped up inside of that impulse, wrapped up inside of that thought, wrapped up inside of that reaction and response. There is that me, and then there is the other me that is standing over here watching that me. And that is the beginning stages of disidentifying with that impulse-driven version of false self. That is not me, this part of me can say. 
that happens to me. Happens to me a lot, as a matter of fact. I've got some real habits around that thing. I bring that thing up again and again on a regular basis. Because I can stand over here, though, I can say that that is not me. That is something that I do, something that I think, something that I feel. But it is not what defines me. Jennifer pointed out last week how we do that when we watch ourselves being resistant or receptive. We don't decide, well, at least not initially, we don't decide that this is good and this is bad. We simply observe ourselves doing it. Look at me being resistant. Look at me being receptive. That is not me. Me is the experience over here that is observing. But if I'm not careful, I can make that become the me that I live out each day. I can allow that impulse-driven me to become the me with which I interface with the world, and for all practical purpose, that version of me can become the me that I extend to the world if I'm not careful. And that is the context into which the contemplative practices fit. The ability to be that observing self, this is why we meditate. Because when we meditate, it helps us stand outside of our thoughts and observe them. This is why we work the circle. This is why we do the practices. This is why we are contemplative. Because when we are awake to the divine life self, when we quiet the ego as self, when we disidentify with the impulse-driven self, then we find the capacity to live the golden rule. It's always in us. It's always there. It is born of the divine life that has breathed you and me into being. It's always there. But boy, does that ego version of self get in the way. Boy, does that false self, impulse-driven self get in the way. So we practice the contemplative so that we can do what the world needs. We practice the contemplative so that we can do what our families need. We practice the contemplative so that we can do what our workplaces need and what Haiti needs and what Ferguson needs and what Congress needs so we can do unto others what we would have them do unto us. So in this context setting part of the lesson, let me talk a little bit about that word, contemplative, for a moment. The word is formed of three Latin roots, contemplatio. Let's start with the last one, teo. It means an abiding state of being. It could be a state of anxiety, if that's an abiding state of being, or a state of criticism, or a state of pain, or a state of anger. It could be in a, any state of being that remains part of us that begins to define us, Tio. Now, as followers of Jesus, we hold out the possibility that that abiding state of being could be love or joy or kindness or peace. The abiding state of being could be awareness of the interior movement of the divine. The abiding state of being could be saturated in divine love, saturated in divine acceptance. It could be a low-grade awareness of the wisdom that is running through our days. The T.O. of our days, of our lives, could be peace in the midst of difficulty. It could be peace in the throes of the tumultuous times that we live in. 
It could be an interior peace when people mistreat us. It could be kindness when we are treated unkindly. Teo is the state of being that characterizes our days. Now, at the beginning of the word, contemplatio, is the root con, C-O-N. It simply means with. Chili con queso means chili with cheese. In our tradition, the root speaks of a deep yearning for the withness of the divine, to abide in the divine life, to be with, to be in. Paul says it this way, So what if I gain a bunch of stuff in my life? So what if I gather treasures all my life long? I would be willing to lose it all for the experience of with. For that one thing, he says, I would suffer the loss of everything else. For that one thing, the being with, I would count everything else rubbish. Con tio. And in the middle is that root Latin word templa. Templa for the Romans was a particular place in the heavens. It was the place where the gods lived. It was the place where the divine was housed. On earth, there are temples where we get the root templa. Ostensibly, those were where the gods also lived. And so one was with, con, with God in the templa. So con templa tio. With the divine as a state of being. Living in an ongoing state of give and take with the Holy Spirit of God. Living in an ongoing state of alertness to the divine spirit. Able to see past the lesser dimensions of life. Able to see past the face value state of affairs in which we usually live. And able to see embedded in each thing the beauty and the joy and the goodness and the peace that comes when we have this deepened sense of awareness. And to be able to access the source from which we can do unto others what we would have them do unto us. And that's why we revisit this theme each year, because gratitude is big. It is one of the easiest ways to stir ourselves to contemplatio. The state of being aware of the divine, alert to God, moving with the, divine, the dance of the indwelling spirit of the divine, by simply stirring our hearts to gratitude, it helps us profoundly get to that tio, to that state of being. And it's something all of us can do. Actually, it turns out it's not that difficult to do to stir your hearts to gratitude. What's really difficult is to sit down and do it. What's difficult is to remember. What's difficult is to make yourself have a time in which you say, but if once you start looking at your life, there's a truckload of stuff to be thankful about. It's not hard to do. It's hard to get ourselves to do it. When we understand that the well-being of the earth depends on it, maybe it's not so difficult. When we understand that the well-being of our families depends upon it, the well-being of our workplaces, the well-being of our children's schools, the well-being of our neighborhoods, the well-being of our civic discourse depends on us being people who can access that interior source from which people have for centuries been able to do unto others what they would have them do unto them. That 
when we realize that the well-being of all of these places where we are making our worlds every day depends on a critical mass of us doing unto others as we would have others do unto us, then we realize that it really matters if we are intentional and purposeful in the stirring up of gratitude within our hearts. That's why the ancient texts so often enjoin us to be thankful, to be thankful, to be thankful. That's why our own national forebears set aside a day each year to reinforce the importance of gratitude. This is why we come back to this theme every year here at NRCC, because it really matters. Because gratitude leads to an awakening within us to the divine life. And an awakening within us to the divine life leads us to the ability to do unto others what we would have them do unto you, which in turn leads you and leads me and leads your children to be creators of the worlds that we want to live in. We want to live in a world that is filled with people doing unto others what we would have them do unto us. And the way that we get there is a well-rehearsed, well-laid-out, well-worn path given to us by the ancient spiritual wisdom. Contemplatio. And get there by this very simple practice. Intentionally, purposely stir up gratitude within your heart. So, Spirit of God, may we be a grateful people, a thankful people, a resonating with the divine spirit within people, and a people who can and do do unto others what we would have them do unto us. Be that so in us and among us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.